Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for today. And that is Thursday, October the 14th. We started the show talking about some interesting comments Justin Trudeau made um, at a conference documenting and championing, stamping out anti-Semitism yesterday. A great cause, all would agree. Justin Trudeau made the point that there are hateful groups amongst the far left. It's an interesting statement. It's a statement you wouldn't have heard from him on the election trail. What did he mean by that? We unpacked some of that. That It got a tremendous listener response with a lot of different opinions there. Dr. Lucy McBride, internist from Washington, D.C., about our acceptance of the things we can't change regarding COVID-19. I think it's a fascinating chat that you'll enjoy. John Gruden, out in the NFL, but what's the bigger picture now for the NFL, all sports, our workplaces, how we speak to each other, how we communicate. I think that's a worthy conversation to have. Kavitha Edwards joins me from The Athletic and Dr. Colin Furness on where we're at with restrictions, where we're at with the controversial issue of teachers wanting to wear more protective PPE than the flimsy blue masks they get from their boards. Something that Ryan Imgren's been talking about, and he'll join me live on the show tomorrow. Plus, what happened when for October 14th? We have great podcast ahead. Thanks for finding us and choosing us right here on Toronto Today. Justin Trudeau yesterday. This was interesting. Now, let me tell you where Justin Trudeau was yesterday and why these comments, I tried to poll as many people as I could to find out what they thought of it. Um, but Justin Trudeau was speaking in Sweden. And I'm going to play you the comments, then explain what he was there for. And it's very bizarre that the comments were this. And I think there's two ways to look at it. I'm going to play you the full comment. Then I'm going to play you kind of an isolated comment that people are like, was he misspeaking? This happens from time to time. I'm sure it's happened with me on the air. That something is misunderstood, gets turned into a broken game. You know, remember that broken telephone game? I always reference this on the radio. Thankfully, you don't have to terribly often because I'd like to think that what I do well is uh, lay something out, clarify it, and there isn't misunderstanding. But if you didn't hear it directly and you heard it from somebody else and then they pass that on to somebody else, they pass that on to somebody else, you're fourth person by that point and it's very possible that there's some confusion. So I don't want to, I don't want this to create confusion. That's why I'm going to play you the clip. We're going to get a sense of as to whether you think he misspoke or whether you think there's a message that's put out there. I'll tell you where he was and why he was there in a second. But this is a comment Justin Trudeau makes yesterday about, I guess what we'd call the rise of, and I don't think we could argue this, the rise of extremism, uh, the rise of hate, it's been documented um, what what people yesterday it was actually documented what people in the healthcare industry face, what people who have spoken out about COVID face, um, and it's not great what doctors and microbiologists and virologists and epidemiologists have all faced when they when they've become public facing, and I hate that that's the case because they're giving an opinion, uh, and to be honest, again though I'm you know beyond uh, having. I don't know, Patty Haidu or Christine Elliott or or Kieran Moore or, or or Eileen Devilla, you know, the good doctors, tell me how to navigate um 365 24/7. Like that's that's so far behind me. And I think you know this. I'm not just going to come on the air. I'm going to try and provide balance and structure to what we need to do to get out of this all together and what we're doing individually and how to pick each other up. And some of you are more ready for some things than I am. And I'm ready for more things than some of you are. 
But what I think most of us have stopped, I'm not going to repeat talking points from public health at this particular point. I play that Patty Haidu thing. I want you to know that she said on the weekend to Mercedes Stevenson, really don't travel. Don't be traveling. Tra- travel. Avoid travel if you can. I'm like, that's all I want to do, man. I, that's all I want to do is go and travel right now because I haven't been able to. Um, if, if I've been in my house quite a bit. I've watched everything I want to watch on television. I've made I've made those lists and I've checked them twice. Um, I want my kids to be out there. I want my parents to be out there. I want my life back. You might be the exact same, but that's but so that's the balance that I'm trying to bring here. But it's 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 added to there have been um, you know moments of of hatred and there have been moments of extremism. We saw a lot of problems on the campaign trail. I don't know that they all can be laid at the doorstep of the People's Party of Canada or Maxime Bernier, but that's been a big part of the problem. That's been a massive part of the problem. And we have a lot of groups that say, I'm getting picked on because our group is getting the worst the worst of it. And I'm sure that they feel that way. I'm not questioning that legitimacy, but it, it, it really doesn't matter. Has there been anti-black racism that we've experienced over the last year and a half? Yes. In our school system, is anti-Semitism on the rise? Absolutely yes. Are, uh, is the LGBTQ community uh, more laid out there bare and, and experience some, you know, moments of hatred and or homophobia? Sure. Also, also true. But this was an interesting one from Justin Trudeau yesterday. I want to see what you think of it. And you can text me at 289-975-1640. So we're going to play the full cut. Then I want to isolate something here. And then I want you to tell me what your thought about it is. Here's Justin Trudeau yesterday speaking on a conference call, on a conference call. Um, and he talks about this is kind of a both sidesism thing here. And it surprised a lot of people. And a lot of people are upset by it. But I don't know if a lot of people are the vast majority of people. Here's what he said. We see an increase of polarization, of extremism, of radicalization everywhere, including in some of the most open liberal democracies in the world, in our elections, in our public discourse, and in mainstream communications, let alone social media, we're seeing a rise in intolerance. We see the organizations of uh, extremist groups on the far right and the far left that are pushing uh, white supremacy, intolerance, radicalization, promoting hatred, fear, and mistrust across borders, but within borders as well. I'm right now. Okay, so there's Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, and he's speaking at, um, at, at a conference that's meant to combat anti-Semitism. It's advancing Holocaust remembrance, both incredibly important causes, more so now than ever, more so now than ever, and that's in Malmo, Sweden. So the conference is there. It looks like he's speaking remotely. I thought he was going to Sweden, but I don't think that he did. And I'm not challenging or questioning whether he should go to Sweden. That's not the point. But the co- the idea of the conference is to point out anti-Semitism in all parts of society. What, whether it's been you know boosted in your in in Europe, um, we're seeing this. By the way, let me come back to soccer for a second. We're seeing major problems major problems at a lot of these European soccer games. There's an international break, so you're getting country play country, and it's kicking off in a lot of ways. And it's not just anti-black chants and racism. I've experienced this before. 
I've been, I, I, I was at an England Germany game at Euro 2000. So not, not enough advancement in 21 years. In some ways it's worse where the black English players, the German fans, and, and I'm not, again, isolating um, a specific culture. But the German fans made monkey noises when Emil Heskey would touch the ball or Saul Campbell would touch the ball. If you follow soccer, you know who these names are. And you're going, my God, horrifying, horrifying to the nth degree. I hear this. I can hear it from sort of the end zone behind the German goal. What are we doing? And what are we doing about this? So there were problems all over the last couple of weeks as European teams have played each other nation against nation to try and qualify for um for, for the next World Cup, just as Canada is trying to do last night at BMO against Panama. Thank God we live where we live, because I don't think that that would happen if Canada was playing, um, you know, a nation from the Far East. If Canada was playing, um, you know, obviously a Caribbean nation, which we've done. If Canada was playing Israel in a World Cup game, they'd have to qualify. So would we. But I don't think we would hear that and see that. I think we know that. I think we know how f- much further ahead we are. And yet. Out of the shadows, there's problems. So that's where Justin Trudeau's speaking. I want to lay that out. Here's the isolated comment right now. And you tell me if he meant to say on the far left, some people had a problem with it. And other people said good for him for noting that there's both sides of the political spectrum can provide their own level of what they would describe as hate. Here's the isolated clip of what he said. We see the organizations of uh, extremist groups on the far right and the far left that are pushing uh, white supremacy, intolerance, radicalization, promoting hatred, fear, and mistrust. It's the first time I've heard it. Tell me what your thought is. I want to hold it here for a couple minutes, but tell me what your thought is via text 289-975-1640. 289-975-1640. I need two quick answers from you. Did he mean to say the far left? Did he mean to say the far left? Because that's the first time I've heard him go there. It's the first time I've heard him go there. And do you agree with what he said or is it out of line? There's like, and here's my problem with what he said. I know it's, I know their words, but if we're going to play this game where we're going to parse everybody's words and say, this is what you should have said. And this is what I think you mean. Look, going too woke does exist. Oh my God. Okay. It really does exist. I'm all for solving problems. I'm all for advancing conversations and causes. I'm here for a reason. I'm not here for just for a paycheck and to spit empty platitudes into a microphone every day. I do want to make a difference. I'm telling you that right now. Barack Obama, the former U.S. president, coolly called out going to woke a year ago. It was a very famous quote. And he's like, it's just so obvious that that's happening. People are just trying to show that they care so much and, and they're fighting almost each other to show that they care more than somebody else. So that is something. <laughs> I mean, we know that that's happening. There's a million different directions. I could mention Dave Chappelle, which I think is an honest conversation to have as well, is what Netflix should do, what Dave Chappelle is. I think those are honest conversations to have. But what Trudeau does here, I think he's I think you can't go. Well, there's very unfine people on both sides. Is that a little bit like Trump in Charlottesville in the other direction, invoking the far left? Because those equivalencies aren't the same. Those equivalencies aren't the same. If you over and if you think that our society's overindulging in canceling people or cancel culture, as opposed to making people uh, accountable for words and actions more than we used to, 
John Gruden, the former Las Vegas Raiders coach, the obvious recent example. But people are trying to people are trying to push around Dave Chappelle. People are trying to say, well, you know, Netflix, you shouldn't even have him on your platform. Netflix, you shouldn't even give us the availability to Dave Chappelle. It doesn't matter whether I want to watch it or not. But overindulging in canceled culture is not the same as someone on the far right. And this Justin Trudeau should be able to relate to this. Driving a truck through um, the Rideau Gates with weaponry and a mission statement thinking I might murder the prime minister if the conversation I want to have with him and I'm forcefully trying to have doesn't go the right way. We get that that's different. We get that that's different. And a lot of these groups, you can get them in a room and they're not going to agree on very much. You're hateful towards me. No, you're more hateful towards me. It's a problem. I'm not going to tell you it's not. All right, last night, I fit the time in, uh, chatted with Dr. Lucy McBride from Washington, D.C. Um, this is about 15 minutes long. I think it's 15 really good minutes. We chatted for 35. Like, she's got information to give, guidance to give, and uh, and it's not just for parents. It's far from being just for parents here. I started off our chat, and we've had several of them uh, during this pandemic. I think she's such a valuable source of information. And we started by talking about the inherent risk of COVID moving to an endemic phase here. Parents are worried. Parents want guarantees. Their guarantees, we can't give them right now necessarily. This is our conversation. Everything we do in life, every behavior we have carries risk. Our relationship to alcohol, our relationship to food, the way we move, the way we work, the way we sleep or not sleep, you know, all those things affect our health. So there's never been a role for absolutism in medicine doctor's job and my job in particular as a primary care doctor is to help people understand the risks they face, understand their unique vulnerabilities, and then mitigate those risks to the extent that it's possible. And in the case of COVID-19, a virus that is now very much able to be controlled with the vaccine, we have to understand that once you've been vaccinated, you've done the very best thing you can for yourself, your family, and the community to protect from COVID. Mm -hmm. um, but COVID isn't going away. It is going to be here. It is going to be endemic like the other four coronaviruses, like flu, like RSV. And it's inevitable that at some point we will all be exposed to the virus. We won't all get COVID, many of us will, but if you've been vaccinated, you've, you've really done the best job you can to protect yourself. And so right now, as I talked about in this article, we are at the phase that I'm calling the acceptance phase of the pandemic. We need to take a hard look at what we can change and work on those things, like get vaccinated if you haven't been vaccinated, you know, take care of your underlying health conditions, re, you know, remember that health is more than just not getting COVID, and then accept the things we can't control, like other people, or the fact that coronavirus is here to stay, and then know the difference and get a guide, get a doctor, find some source of wisdom to help you navigate uncertain times, which is basically the, the definition of life. I don't know how much it was happening in the United States, Dr. McBride, but what was happening up here is people were professing the concept of of COVID zero, eradicating the virus. And, and that's maybe December 2020, January 2021. And uh, and I've been you know, who hasn't been wrong about things we could, you know, underrate ventilation or or not see uh, the Delta variant coming when we were actually, you know, kind of puffing our chests out in April and May going well, you know, with this current, with COVID classic, as it were, this won't be so bad. Delta certainly moved some goalposts and changed the game. Absolutely, it did. When when COVID zero was sort of profligated out there and mentioned, did you think at the time 
this is rather like we're not New Zealand. We can't we can't make these efforts. And we've even seen New Zealand give up on this in the last two weeks. What did you think at the time when people said, well, we'll be able to stamp this right out to the point of non-existence? I mean, I'll be honest. I thought we could do a lot better than we have done. You know, I didn't think the COVID zero was possible because like, you know, so many viruses, you know, that would be like putting toothpaste back in the tube. We have too heterogeneous of a population in the United States. We have politicized the pandemic. We've had not great uptake of the vaccine, despite the extraordinary safety and efficacy profile. And, you know, even though it looks like we were gonna do pretty well with these vaccines back in December, January, February, you know, then came along Delta, this highly contagious variant. People are getting breakthrough infections. You know, it, it became more and more abundantly clear to the general public what those of us in science and public health have, and medicine have been thinking all along, which is that this is not ever gonna go away. All we can do is mitigate the risks, protect our, ourselves, our families, our communities the best we can with vaccination. And then we need to recalibrate our risk gauges, which have been thrown out of whack. There's two uh, There's two things also I think about regularly. And one is that politicians have certainly stumped uh, in, you know, in your country, in my country, um, Western European leaders have often used the phrase now, this is now a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And while that's true with hospitalizations and ICUs, again, with with no absolutes uh, being considered, most of of those bad outcomes are occurring to unvaccinated people. They are. That's the data. But I often think it's also for parents. I think it's also a vax like it. we've got two different pandemics happening with fully vaccinated households. Um, your kids are older like mine are and non-vaccinated households with parents itching to get a 10 year old vaccinated, itching to get even an eight year old vaccinated so they can see grandpa and grandma so they can go on a trip so they can go uh, to a you know playoff baseball game or a college football game. Do you see that, um, you know, in your community as I do, that if anything, and I'll say this also, some parents see the end of the runway for their kids being at home. Some parents, I've only got five years and three years left, respectively, with my kids. My perspective on let's go might be a lot differently than people who have a four-year-old and two-year-old. And as you remember those years, right, parenting seems interminable. This is going to go on forever. And you realize when you get to our stage, it doesn't. That's right. I mean, the first thing you said is such an important point. The The language that has been tossed around the, the, the pandemic of the unvaccinated, the facts are the facts. Most people in the hospital right now with COVID-19 are unvaccinated, not immune. But I don't love that language because as you, I think, agree, it makes it sound like a us and them kind of a battle, like the Crips and the Bloods or something. When the truth of the matter is, as you and I both know, natural immunity does count, whether it's as robust and durable as vaccine-induced immunity, um, it depends on the person, and we, we have more study on that coming. Um, but, you know, I think one of the problems we've had in the public health space, particularly in the United States, is this sort of shaming and blaming of people who aren't willing or are hesitant about vaccination, and we've created this sort of, you know, basket of the deplorables kind of language that has then further kept people from getting vaccinated. Um, which is which is not good, right? The, the the way for me as a primary care doctor, for example, to to help people get the treatment they need if they're hesitant is to provide a safe, non-judgmental space and to not judge and shame for making a decision that I wouldn't make and to help them get the, to the facts. Parents of little kids are perfectly entitled to be more cautious than parents like you and me whose kids are vaccinated. At the same time, I think some of the fear and anxiety, which is of course normal and rational, 
is stoked by media reports suggesting that there's this, you know, deadly worse, you know, version of coronavirus called Delta, which actually is is not more virulent in kids, it's just infecting more kids, and tragically so. So what's my point? I guess my point is that, you know, one of the things that I see in my patients who have younger kids is this sort of fear and um, anxiety that's, that sometimes out of proportion to the facts about Delta at the expense of their ability to let their kids do the things they need to do to be healthy in other ways, like get outside and exercise with their kids and socialize. But again, who am I to judge? I mean, this is not my, like, I'm not here to judge parents. I'm here to help them get to the facts so then they can care for their kids as the, in, in the ways they think is appropriate. But I, I, did, I did write a piece in the Atlantic um, earlier this uh, I did write a piece in the Atlantic earlier this summer about, about kids and Delta. And, you know, it's tricky. It's a tricky landscape, like, like anything is right now, talking about kids and risk, because, as I said earlier, people are entitled to different risk tolerances. Um, but we also, I think, should agree that, you know, mental health is health and kids have suffered extraordinary losses, social, emotional, learning losses. Um, and I worry about this generation of kids. Mm-hmm. Um, whether they're teenagers or four-year-olds being locked down and restricted in terms of their activities. Dr. Lucy McBride's joining us on Toronto today on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Her latest is in the Atlantic. I was going to ask you, you write something. Uh, no human contact is risk-free. No vaccine is perfect that we can, and we can never guarantee safety in life. When I watch say sporting events or I see people gathering um, and I know people do this in Canada. They're like, look at the states, look at look at the what the Americans are doing. And there's an element of envy, and then there's an element of, and that was happening earlier in the spring when things appeared more open. But there's there's a bunch of different Americas. Like when I see, you know, Massachusetts is almost seventy percent fully vaccinated, and there's still a bunch of states, Florida, Louisiana, West Virginia, that are are barely forty percent. If I'm watching a sporting event, let's say, I feel a lot better that in Fenway Park. 70% of people in Massachusetts are vaxxed and they require you to show that you've been vaccinated to get in. Whereas a wide open college football game in West Virginia with 40% where there's no proof of vaccination needed, a little more harrowing. How do you feel when you see big crowds on TV at a live sporting event or a concert? Yeah, or things it's, like that it's funny. My daughter and I were watching the Iowa football game together. And, you know, when the game was over and all the fans rushed into the middle of the field <laughs> and, she looks at me and she's vaccinated and she's, she's almost 16. She's like, and she's pretty smart about this stuff. She was like, mom, remind me why I'm wearing a mask in my classroom when I'm vaccinated and these, and she's not mad. She kind of wants to be at that game. She's just, she's <laughs> just pointing out this, you know, kind of cognitive dissonance, right. Between, you know, this sort of hyper vigilance on the one hand, which is, you know, where we are in DC, which is, you know, in, 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 in many, many ways appropriate. Um, and then this sort of, um, more laissez-faire attitude. And it's just another example of the United States of America being very heterogeneous and why it's so very difficult to message, you know, to a, 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 a huge country um, like the CDC is trying to do. Um, but at the end of the day, the path forward is through widespread vaccination and population immunity. So, People who've gotten infected by Delta, even though, of course, they didn't want to, and tragically, some of them got very sick, but people who've been infected with Delta also have immunity that counts towards population immunity. And so we are going to get there, not to mention the fact that kids are going to be eligible for the vaccine next month, most likely, 
And then, ta-da, we are going to get this oral antiviral mm-hmm. medication, molnupiravir. Whoever thought of that name is, you know. Really something. Kind of yeah. It's a lot, a lot, um, of vowel, lot of vowels there. It's a real fortune special. Yeah. Um, that's a game changer. That is going to mean that, you know, when you pair a rapid test, for example, and you get a quick diagnosis of COVID-19, whether you've been vaccinated or not, hopefully you've been vaccinated, with a prescription from your doctor for an oral tablet to prevent mild COVID from becoming moderate, severe COVID, that is going to really change the landscape. So I am more and more optimistic about this thing, you know, becoming a controllable, manageable virus, you know, by early 2022, if not before. I mean, as you can see in the Iowa football game, some people have already moved on. (laughs) A few have, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, natural immunity. Um, it's now getting defined by some as uh, some people want to call it acquired immunity. Some people want to call it infected immunity. You talk about it. Uh, Monica Gandhi, who you mentioned, I think is brilliant. Uh, Dr. Gandhi, she talks about it. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who I think is amazing. I love his book. He talks about it. Public health officials don't tend to talk about it. And I can assure you up here, I'll, I'll put um, ID specialists on. I'll put epidemiolo- epidemiologists on. They'll talk about it. You're not going to hear politicians talk about it. You're not going to hear public health officials talk about it. What's the what's the theory? What's the theory behind that? Is it that they're worried they'll slow down the vaccination rate and somebody think I'm strong? I work out. I I won't need the vaccine. Like, what is the theory behind why they don't talk about it? Because we all do and we all know it exists. I mean, it's it is kind of funny, right? Because it's it's just a basic biological fact that when you are infected with a virus and you live that immune response is meaningful. We don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know, you know, how wide and deep it is, if it would, you know, be protective a year, two years from now. But to ignore or deny natural immunity is really to deny a lot of people's lived experiences. And I think denying it is one of the reasons why we are fostering some anger and frustration towards public health institutions. My only hypothesis as to why it's being ignored by some CDC individuals and public health and politicians is because they're worried people will then think, oh, I can just get COVID and not get vaccinated. Um, Or, you know, and and the other, the the legitimate reason is perhaps because, you know, I mean, getting vaccinated puts everyone on a level playing field. And certainly getting a vaccine, even after you've been infected, is probably a good idea. But ignoring the elephant in the room is eroding trust, I think. Lucy, uh, Dr. Lucy McBride's latest is in the Atlantic. One more for you, and, and it's got to do with Thanksgiving. We just finished our holiday weekend, a quick three-day jaunt. Um, Thanksgiving, I, I understand it, too. A lot of people will be like, well, I'm not, I'm not, you know, staying home a second straight year. I want to see my, my family. I want to get together for this, that, and the other thing. And, and a lot of the United States has returned to normal, and in highly vaccinated communities and states, it's certainly safer to do so. Um, what do you think, like the messaging from public health, I, I just don't know anymore whether that is being paid full attention to, and this furthers our, what we were just talking about. What do you think it looks like? Do people just do what they want to do? Will Will a 76-year-old grandma be like, is everybody there going to be vaccinated, even though she is? Um, my mom's the same way. She's 76. She smoked for a bunch of years. Um, she doesn't want to hang out with anybody who's unvaccinated. Luckily, all her nephews and nieces or sorry, grandchildren and grandsons and granddaughters are. But there will be people like that, won't there? Um, even a month and a half from now who are tiptoeing out as opposed to sprinting out of their houses. 
Yeah, and this is really where the rubber meets the road and 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 why in part I wrote this article because we're getting to these sort of granular details about personal risk tolerance. We're in a completely different state and space than we were a year ago. So, you know, if you're getting together for Thanksgiving with everyone in your group who has been vaccinated, you know, you can feel pretty darn good even if you're indoors that that you're protected. That said, if you're more concerned or if you you know, have an unvaccinated person in your group, it makes sense to do a test pre-gathering. If you have a person who's at particularly high risk, even if they've been vaccinated, maybe they aren't comfortable even with vaccinated grandkids who have maybe been socializing with their friends and could have a breakthrough infection that's not yet manifest. So, you know, this is where the rubber meets the road, as I said, and this is where, you know, again, we need to appreciate how far we've come from last Thanksgiving but also understand that everyone has different risk tolerances and typically a need to gather and celebrate, you know, these milestones in our life, because ultimately what is health? It's about not getting COVID, but it's also about seeing our family, seeing our loved ones. So you know, it's important not to deprive yourself of these events, particularly after 19 months of, you know, suffering. Um, but, you know, with rapid testing, if you want it, um, with being outside, if that makes you more comfortable. And certainly, of course, by being vaccinated, you are really doing everything you can to protect yourself. All right, there's uh, Dr. Lucy McBride. So hugely busy month in sports. You got game five, Giants-Dodgers tonight, NFL in full swing. College football. Can I tell you something? I can never talk enough college football on Canadian radio. People are like, stop that. Program directors are like, stop that also. But it's been an amazing season. And guess what? The and Alfonso Davies goal last night. Like we're 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 all swelled up, right? Canada beating Panama. We're gonna go to the World Cup along with Mexico and the United States. I know it. But everybody talking about John Gruden and everybody realizing there's a reckoning in the NFL right now. How far does it go? It's a great question. Diving into some of that in her article on the Athletic uh, is the very talented Kavitha Davidson. Uh, the headline: In no way, shape, or form is John Gruden an anomaly. And this is why we have writers on because a lot of radio guys like me can't spell. Anomaly. So it's always helpful to have Kavitha Davidson on to uh, put it in perspective. Your piece is great. I think you made an amazing point in it that I want to amplify. One is that when you start using language like this, like we've all had people try and try and push kind of language on us. And usually we like ignore it or walk away. Maybe more now than ever. We say something like that's not right. John Gruden doesn't use these words unless some of the emails coming back to John Gruden to me, Kavitha, are using the same kind of words. Am I wrong? No, I think I think that's exactly right. And you know what what I'll say about that is is two things. One, you know, a lot of these emails were that have been released or have been leaked to the New York Times at least uh, were sent to former Washington Football Team Bruce Allen. And I would be very curious to see what he wrote in response. Um, but without having seen that mm. yet, um, you know, John Gruden doesn't say these things like I wrote in in my column unless he knows he has at least a somewhat sympathetic ear on the other side. And these are not things that just kind of roll off the tongue. This is part of his living vocabulary, right? Like these are, this is not casual. I mean, it, it is, it, it's, it's not casual racism or casual 
homophobia, but it is so casual in the way it was just expressed. So these are things, and, 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 you know, these are not just things that he's used to saying, but these are things that, you know, he's used to saying in that particular company. And there's so much more of that out there that I'm sure is only going to come out in the next coming weeks. People have said to me, what happens, Kavitha, if an NFL owner, I mean, um, an owner can't fire himself, but we did see with the Carolina Panthers, an ownership change. We have seen owners sanctioned before for some of the uh, crude things. There was a great debate about what should happen to Robert Kraft, right? When he visited a, a you know, a massage parlor of sorts. Um, so like, but it's, it's tricky, right? There's some very, very powerful men. Many are white men, quite obviously. They all are um, that run NFL teams. What would the league do to sanction an owner using language like this? I don't know the answer. Do you? Uh, I don't really, I will correct you on one thing. There is one non-white, uh, there are two non-white male owners. One is Kim Pagula, um, co-owner of the Bills, and the other is Shad Khan, uh, owner of the Jacksonville. Of course, in Jacksonville. You're right. I don't know how I forgot Shad, but thank you for doing that. Sure. But that being said, you're right. There is there is kind of a precedent for for sanctioning owners. The the obvious thing here is that all of these emails, the 650,000 emails that the league um, that the league has has investigated and gone through and hasn't published its findings about um, came about into an investigation in the toxic culture of the Washington football team. So all eyes are on that team right now. All eyes are wondering what Dan Snyder in particular um, is, is culpable for, is guilty of um, and, and the protectionism that he seems to have been receiving the NFL when they closed its investigation said that it would not uh, it would not write down its findings mm-hmm. because of the quote sensitive nature of what it uncovered um, and I think there had been a feeling for a long time in the league that Dan Snyder was I don't want to say untouchable but definitely one of the more protected owners um, not necessarily because everyone liked him but because of how much t- money his team brought in I don't know if that's necessarily the case any longer um, and there is growing pressure on the league to release those emails and to release what it found. Um, and I would be surprised if they don't get pressured to do so uh, at some point in the future. I, I, and they already are facing that from um, from from uh, from numerous people, including a group of uh, former cheerleaders who has sued the team um, and, and has unfor- and, and has uh, to their right uh, signed a settlement and an NDA as part of that. Kavitha Davidson's our guest. Her piece on uh, John Gruden and where this goes with the NFL uh, can be read uh, on The Athletic. Um, Mike Tirico's comments, uh, Tony Dungy's comments Sunday, uh, boy, uh, by Monday night, they didn't, as, as we say with some tweets, they didn't age well. Friday, they were responding to Friday's comments uh, about Demora Smith and, and Tony Dungy was like, made a mistake. Let's move on. Uh, and I know that this resonated from what I've read within the black community saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. W- you know, that insult was there. There there was obvious and inherent racism in John Gruden's comments of emails that were released Friday night. But it was only when um, something was homophobic, when something was misogynistic that was piled on. I mean, you know, John Gruden got the triple crown of of being just awful to to groups that you just shouldn't be awful to. And there should be some sense of of greater understanding. How will those comment? Those are going to be interesting uh, walkbacks, aren't they? For Mike Tirico, who worked with John Gruden for a bunch of years, and Tony Dungy, who would know him from, you know, basically coaching circles. 
A hundred percent. And none, none of those, as you said, none of those tweets, none of those statements aged well after uh, the New York Times published their findings on Sunday, um, you know, or on Monday, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, that being, I mean, Tony Dungy has his own history of saying super homophobic things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he did the whole apology tour. And, and that's why he is still, um, he is still one of the voices and one of the faces of the NFL. But that is also indicative of the kind of, uh, the kind of mentality that does still exists that that exists beyond just John Gruden in in the league. Um, I think that it, it is one thing to say, you know, this is not the man that I have encountered personally, but it is another thing when you are presented with this amount of 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 this kind of speech of these kinds of words, you know, you kind of have to look look look. You have to you have to look at it um, realistically and say, well, you know, these are that this is not the man who's presented himself to me, but this is clearly, um, you know, who he actually is or what he actually thinks. You know, when Carl Nassib came out um, defensive end for uh, for the Raiders and became the first openly gay active player in the NFL, John Gruden, as everyone else did, rightfully celebrated him, and he said something to the effect of, "I learned many years ago." that what makes a man different makes him great. And I think that a lot of us have learned that what a man says in public doesn't matter as much as what he says to friends when he thinks nobody else is listening. It really doesn't. I'm so glad you brought that up. And I'm glad you brought up Carl Nassib, too, because that shows some of the evolution. Uh, The drafting um, of Michael Sam is referenced by Jeff Fisher and the Rams at, at a certain point in time. And uh, and Carl Nassib came out, as, as I put it, he came out this summer and it was like it was like he was ordering like a salad at lunch. He was like, hey, guys, just letting you know this. And none of us had, you know, none of us needed to debate. How is this going to play in the locker room? What's going to happen? Does he have to be really good? We just said, hey, you know, this is where we're now. We are now love who you want to love. And you should be absolutely as accepted as anyone else. And we agree on that. It's weird that we came seven years from the Michael Sam debate. It's weird, even the Colin Kaepernick debate, which, you know, many athletes, some of whom were, were were black and white, said, no, Colin shouldn't do this. No, Colin shouldn't do that. And there's been a real push forward to go, well, now we understand it and, and we get it a lot better than we did a half decade ago when we were debating what he should do and should not do in the workplace. Absolutely. And and just to, you know, to, to point out, out Carl Nassib again for, for a second, he didn't he didn't come to practice on Wednesday. He asked for a personal day. This has been a lot for him to process. Um, and he was, he was granted that personal day, you know, and I can't even imagine what it's like to, and I don't want to speak for Carl Nassib, but to have your coach express public support and, and Nassib has not done any interviews except for one since coming out. He has not wanted to make this about himself. Um, but he did one interview with his teammate, Darren Waller. And he said that during OTAs, there was, uh, a team meeting in which uh, in which the reader the Raiders locker room they talked about real things and very personal things and he felt such a level of support and empathy in that room that it, it helped guide his decision eventually to come out later um, and 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 that kind of supportive environment in locker rooms is existing more and more now. Um, but at the same time, he's had to read what his coach was saying behind his back in closed doors. Uh, and, and I can't even imagine what reconciling those two things is, is like for him right now. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible betrayal. I know the emails are old comments, but John Gruden has to understand uh, how they're going to be perceived. And they're, they're, they're real difficult things to walk back, no matter what language we used 20 years ago. If you're a leader of men, if you're a leader of women, it doesn't doesn't matter if you lead you're just held to a higher standard and, and John Gruden flunks all those standards um, there's not much defense for it Kavitha I got to keep moving thank you very much for making the time I love reading your work in the athletic thanks for taking some time for our listeners this morning thank you have a good morning you got it
You saw this story yesterday. We mentioned it, uh, that there are some uh, GTA teachers, uh, one specifically facing suspension. He took an N95 mask to class. I remember asking teachers in September of 2020, pre-vaccination, tell me about the PPE. What are the safeguards that are in place for you there? Well, the board's making us wear these flimsy little blue masks. That's something that can't really be laid at the doorstep of the Minister of Education. You can say, well, we need this and we need that. But the boards and the unions are the people that could advocate for better protection here. And there's some criticism, as I mentioned, Ryan Imgren on the show tomorrow has documented that that just hasn't taken place. And he's not sure why. And I think we've thought about this in retail environments, all of the uh, pre-vaccination. But remember, wherever we go when we feel safe now, we think we're among fully vaccinated people. And teachers aren't, and they sure aren't at the elementary school level either. Dr. Colin Furness, uh, epidemiologist, is kind enough to join us on this topic and amongst a few other things. I always appreciate your time, Dr. Furness. Thank you very much for making it for me. My pleasure. Thanks. How on track is uh, Mr. Imgren with this? Um, He was a teacher. He looked around and thought, this isn't the right way to do things. Uh, There's a better way to protect teachers that are in the front lines, surrounded by a lot of unvaccinated people, whether they're little ones or not, every single day. I'm glad he's highlighting this issue. I'm glad he's turning activist on this issue. I think it matters. It's been an issue for personal care workers in long-term care homes, actually. They've had N95 masks taken away from them when they have been treating COVID-positive residents. So it's, it's, this is not just restricted to teachers. It's, it's really a question of denying airborne transmission and policy. And teachers are in a difficult position this way. And when a board decides they want to have a standard issue, they want to have a standardization so that everyone's treated the same, you can understand maybe why they would want to do that. But their standard is, is inadequate. I mean, grossly inadequate. Who do we lay that at? Is this is this unions? Is this the school boards? Um, like I said, I can't, you know, we can pound and probably appropriately so on Doug Ford and Stephen Lecce for lots of things that are lacking in terms of safeguards for education. All that's fine. But the PPE, does that come back to the unions and or the boards? I, I guess it does. The the boards ultimately make the decisions, um, but the unions have an ability to clamor and to advocate for change. So I think the unions have not been screaming about this, and the board has reverted to, you know, boards have reverted to their usual practice, I guess, of wanting to standardize and not wanting to deal with or create complexity here. And, and so the outcome is disappointing for teachers. And it's an odd one because you are taking away an element of personal choice. And sometimes we've rolled our eyes, especially when it comes to vaccination in certain you know spots going, oh, OK, you and your personal choice. But for teachers, this seems like the most pragmatic thing imaginable. Uh, and maybe they don't want a kid going into one class, seeing a teacher with one form of mask and another and thinking, am I less safe in this class? But in doing so, you've made all of them a little less safe by not allowing these masks. Exactly. I mean, I think if the board were in this conversation, they would say, we need to make sure that teachers adhere to a minimum. And if we, if we make it a free-for-all, some teachers may wear you know, mesh masks. And then what do we do? But I, I, I don't find that compelling argument. I think at the very, very worst, they could say, wear the blue mask so that we can tick that box for Workplace uh, Safety Insurance Board or whatever their reasoning is. And then wear whatever you want underneath. If you want to wear a, a, a KN95 mask underneath that because you've got vulnerable people at home, and vulnerable people in the classroom, then do that. And I think that would be humane and reasonable. Dr. Colin Furness, our guest, Global News Radio 640 Toronto on Toronto Today. So you note, as as we did Monday morning, and we led with this story, that Silverthorne Collegiate uh, closed up on Monday. 
they're now I find the irony now is they've got a vaccination clinic happening in the school. And I'm not saying that's bad. Of course, vaccination clinics are wonderful and we've got to keep the ball rolling and encouraging people to get vaccinated. Okay, but I'm picturing a fully vaccinated 16 or 17 year old at home who's totally asymptomatic, who is stuck at home online learning right now and might be for the foreseeable future. We're not doing tests to stay. We're not, you know, pushing these kids back into the classroom and having a, a system like many U.S. states have to do it eminently. It's, I can't imagine that household. It's it's incredibly frustrating to do what you're asked to do, have a fully vaccinated, asymptomatic teenager at home, and, and they may not be able to go back for 10 to 14 days. It's brutal, frankly, and I'm, I'm glad they're doing a vax clinic in that in that school, even if it's closed, because clearly we there's an opportunity to improve vaccination rates there. Mm-hmm. And this may this may actually motivate some kids to say, oh, I guess I guess vaccination and ability to 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 attend in person are really closely linked. So I'm you know, I'm hoping there's some change there. But we are we are all at fault here or the boards are at fault. We're at fault for not doing rapid testing to keep schools open. The UK did it. They paved the way. They published their research. Uh, Doing rapid testing is just as effective as closing schools to prevent transmission. That's important. So we, we refuse to do this and and it really makes no sense what's uh we had a lot of debate earlier about um and and earlier in the week because you know restaurants and gyms felt like with vaccine passports we're getting left behind last friday turns out they'll catch up but um how did you feel seeing a you know a full crowd at the maple leafs game last night or when the jays closed the roof a couple weeks ago i know there's some people saying it's too soon and there's other people saying I'm fully vaccinated. I'm healthy. Please let me get back to doing some of the stuff, especially with with my kids, maybe my vaccinated kids that I've missed doing. Where do you weigh in on that? Well, I want those activities to resume. And part of it is for people who have been vaccine hesitant to say, yeah, I want to go to a Leafs game or a Jays game. So I think the more that we can have normal life uh, presented as a as a, a reward for getting vaccinated, the better. But that doesn't mean we need fully fully stacked uh, stadiums. We don't need that kind of crowding. If you think about the lineups for bathrooms and concession stands and, and crowding on the subway, it's a little too soon for that. It's, it's really a little too soon for that. And, and I think it will be too soon for that until we get kids vaccinated. To me, to me that's, that's the, the line in the sand. I want these venues open, but I want them open at low capacity. It's yeah. That is, so are, are we t- about half of half of the capacity, or where the Jays were? Like like you felt a little little tension rise when they went from fifteen thousand to thirty thousand. That's that's too great a leap forward for the time being. It is. It is. And I realize that we are seeing low rates in Ontario. That's great. Mm-hmm. But go to July and Alberta and how thrilled they were to be doing the Calgary Stampede. And, you know, it took about two months for, for the province to catch fire after that. I'm not saying that we're going to follow in those footsteps, but my point is that having low cases is really not a good rationale for being reckless. Dr. Colin Furness, our guest. I'm, I'm real curious to get your read on this. And, and this gets to, you know, the emotion of it. When, when I when I've talked to you before, I realize you, you bring it very real from a human perspective. When I hear you on other shows, I really enjoy listening to you. There's a lot of criticism of Dr. Dina Hinshaw for um, laying out that a a 14 year old that passed away in Alberta so tragically, so awfully um, had some background issues, had some comorbidities. It's it's really difficult, right? Like there, and, and I I think there was a better way to do it. But is there that is there that line between laying out you know and saying every death is is this horrible tragedy? We've been through a horrible twenty months, and an element of reassuring parents of kids that that don't have that. I don't know the best way to phrase it. That just just that guess what? Your healthy seven year old 
is is not as at as much risk as you may think. There's there's a fine line, right, between being human and and the practicality of the data that we see. And I don't know it. I, it's not a, it's not a it's a tightrope to walk for some of these public health officials. It is, but I also want to point out that death, although incredibly tragic, is not the only way to measure burden of this disease. Mm-hmm. We can measure it in brain damage. We can measure it in autoimmune disease. We can measure it in organ damage. And I don't want any kids getting any of that. So I think to, to sort of focus the spotlight on saying your kid's less likely to die, be happy, is kind of missing the point. Uh, so I, 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 would rather, I would rather us actually focus on mm-hmm. disease rates in kids and say this is unacceptable, that, that there's a huge risk including death, but there's a huge risk to the long-term health of our kids by letting them get infected, and we shouldn't. And that's, that's the kind of discourse we haven't actually had. And I, I think that would be most reassuring. Do you hear anecdotally from parents of 5- to 11-year-olds who say, I- I'm fully vaccinated. My parents, my you know, like elderly parents in their 70s and 80s are certainly fully vaccinated. Those were the people we needed to, to be there and, and swoop down with, with vaccines first. But do you find there's going to be hesitancy to vaccinate a, a healthy six-year-old on your street, in your community, among even other medical professionals, or, or are they all in? I haven't heard of, of added hesitancy based on age, and mm-hmm. I think part of that is we've had these vaccines for a while now, and you know, hundreds of millions, maybe a couple billion doses have been administered, and the, you know, the side effects are what we know they are to be, and, and no one's grown horns, and, and we haven't seen disastrous results. We also, we also know that the, the dosing for kids is lower and the testing that's been done has been really clean. In other words, very little by way of side effects. So there's not a lot in the evidence to say we should be worried. Of course, people make these decisions and have these feelings based on how they feel and their worry. But I, I haven't heard that. And, and I'm, I'm really, really hopeful that, again, we turn to don't measure death, measure harm as a good reason for, for getting kids vaccinated. Yeah, I think that's the best way to put it. Thanks for, uh, for playing it so straight with me and, and bringing your opinion. I really appreciate the time. My pleasure. Thanks. Rob Trevison, Shiva Siddiqui, Dave Bradley, Greg Brady. We do What Happened When? October 14th. By the way, y'all, all three of you, I, Squid Game starts at the Brady household Friday night. I can't take it anymore. I can't stand it. I can't I can't handle it. I see clips. People are talking about it. I'm going in. I'm diving in Friday night. I my, haven't started. My wife watched it without me because I was in bed. <laughs> this is a real conflict of I interest. So she's like, you got to catch up so we can talk about it. I was like, oh, fantastic. Shiva Squid Game? <laughs> oh, I'm totally into it. I, I started I probably like the second or third episode. Um, and the thing is, like, this is how we've just given up. We watch it with our kids. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. I'm seeing this from a friend of mine in the UK who tweeted, our primary school sent a letter to parents telling us not to let kids watch Squid Game and held an all-school assembly telling the kids not to watch Squid Game. Result, children who really want to watch Squid Game. I'm like, yeah, that's, a, that's how it works. When you try and censor a band, son, don't touch this. Well, I will. I want to now. Exactly. Exactly. On this day, though, in 1926, the book Winnie the Pooh, a popular kid's story, was released on this day. And I, I think it still holds up. My kids like it. My kids know it. Yeah. Sheba, Winnie the Pooh. I and, love it. Okay. I love this book. My kids love this book. I've read it to all of them. It's I think it's it's one of those classic books that you a child, every person should read, not even just children. Do we still Rob, into no, it? No, no, don't have it. But you will. It. Got the doll. Got the doll that jingles every time you move it. But oh, well that's nice. Yeah. Do we have a uh and they, did they not just start a um you and McGregor made a movie with yeah, Winnie the Pooh, right? A, a little while ago, Christopher Robin, I think it was called. Wasn't oh yeah, it? okay, oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Do we yeah. have a favorite um, character, one way or the other? 
like Tigger. I, I do love Eeyore. A what I, I don't think anybody really is into Piglet. You could probably. I love Piglet. No, you could no cut out some of Piglet scenes. No, and Piglet I think is so sweet. You could, uh, all of those characters are supposed to represent a part of e- a human being, <laughs> each a part of us. So there's a piglet somewhere inside of you, Greg. I have referenced people as Eeyore before. I'm like, you got to get the Eeyores out of your life. Yeah, the yeah, Debbie Downers. Like, yeah. the, like you, there was no one called Debbie Downer before Eeyore came onto the scene. I'm like, are you ever happy? Does anything please you? Whereas Tigger's just, that's more a, uh, that's more just too much caffeine. Like that's more of the over-caffeinated office worker who but gets fun. But fun, yeah. But they bounce down the hallway, and you're yeah. like, I'm trying to get something done. Please don't come over to my desk. <laughs> Chill out, would you? Yeah. On this day, 1964, Philips became the first U.S. company to begin experimenting with a colored TV. 1964. It was that late. I would have thought it would have been earlier than that. So we all remember black and white televisions. Kids, I don't know when what the age is for kids that don't remember what that's like that's almost a, a rite of passage where that was my first tv in my bedroom was a black i, I kind of stole it from my grandmother i'm like are you using that and uh and then next thing you know i got a television in my bedroom at age 11 i felt like i own the world at that oh, point that explains it that yeah, explains I know. It ex- a lot <laughs> there we go i actually never had a black and white tv i don't remember it at least maybe i was too young but uh, my memories we had that huge tv you know those like oh, big, big wooden they sit on the floor yes yes yeah I had one of that those was too. our first tv but that was color i'm pretty sure it probably was yeah my grandmother had one like that and same thing and i moved that was my first tv moving out for college but that thing is like 150 pounds. Yeah. You need, and you need four <laughs> friends to help you lift it. This, how TVs got so light is one of the great advancements of our technology, where you can basically pick them up with one hand, right? If you need to hang them, you can almost do it with one. That, that was what a foreign concept that was when we were younger. Yeah, for sure. On this day, 1984, Detroit Tigers won the World Series, four games to one over the San Diego Padres. Well, I love that. That was my boyhood team. Uh, they haven't won it since. The Miami Dolphins, my boyhood NFL team, have never won the World Series. So I get, I was so happy when the Raptors won. Yeah. Um, I wanted the Blue Jays to do. I, I grew up kind of hating the Blue Jays as a kid because the Tigers and them had quite a rivalry. But that, yeah, I think about 2015. I'm like, I wanted to see them in the World Series. They would have played the Mets. So I, I would have wanted it so yeah, badly. Been a fun series for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Do you ever watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians? Because on this day in 2007, the first ever episode started. It premiered on this day. Shiva, we're coming to you for this. Oh, why? Why don't we come to you? I'm sure. Do you have every episode recorded? You have the collection. Secretly. Don't come to me for this. I don't know. Why would you come to me for this? Because I, I assume it's a more female-oriented show oh, than men. Do you oh, know? I yeah, know I lots do. of I men. I think the demo is more females. I no. think that's true. There are lots of men who watch this show. I actually, so my husband, if if it's ever on, he turns around and leaves the room. Although I have to admit, I don't watch it until, like, unless there's something big happening, a huge storyline, like one of their, you know, their athletic boyfriends, something, some kind of drama, (laughs) then I'll watch it. But I hate this show. I actually feel like this show was the demise of our society in so many ways. (laughs) Who benefited the most? Like, would it, could you say that it's, um... Um, Kylie Jenner more than Kim Kardashian would Kim Kardashian have been famous anyway at some point without the show kind of like Paris Hilton no no I think that they all needed this platform to jump off of I think their mom's a great manager but I feel like this is what led them to those billion dollar dreams and the and the athletic boyfriends mm. okay I don't uh, and Chloe and Courtney I get them confused Courtney married who's the one with Lamar Odom Chloe that was Chloe Okay. Lamar and then like they're they've all they've dated half like the basketball NBA Easy players now. out there. 
Yeah. I'm si- well, I mean, and there's a Toronto, there's a Brampton boy. What's his name? Tristan Thompson. Yeah. Oh, Tristan yeah. Thompson. Oh, that's been troublesome, hasn't it? So she has a, too, eh? a daughter with him. Yeah. yeah, that was post Lamar Odom. So now she's and they're they're on and off. They're on and off, but he keeps cheating on her. See, the fact that I know this, I'm I'm embarrassed. Yeah, but she kind of dumped Kim. Kind of just dumped Chris Humphreys, a former Raptor as well, right? Like she just moved right <laughs> off of him, right, Rob? Was he a former Raptor? Yes, oh yeah, yes, for a few was. years. I think oh, when the I show started, that. he was in Toronto. I know he played for a bunch. He was in Boston, New Jersey. His, his biggest claim to fame was uh, <laughs> he was a good-looking basketball player. I think this is a guilty pleasure, Rob. See, I actually only know this from the basketball. From the NBA yeah. and I don't really know who these people are. I have no idea. <laughs> Finally, on this date, 1992, the number one single in Canada, House of Pain's Jump Around. Remember this one? Yeah, I'm in on this one. I uh, and and again, another one that just like still gets played at sporting events, like 27 yeah, years yeah, later, totally. all the time. Well, when there's a jump ball, does it get played at a hockey game? No. Okay. No. Oh, you think it's a more basketball one? You don't oh, hear yeah, it in baseball. Sure. You don't hear it in. It's when there's a but, jump ball in basketball, and then this or uh, ki- um, who who are the two kids? Oh, Chris, Chris Cross. 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 Yeah. Chris Cross. Yeah, <laughs> the two kids with the pants on, the jeans on backwards. Backwards. Yeah, they play that when there's a jump ball or jump by. I don't know. Van Halen. Van Halen. Yeah. There's a line, and I'm looking at the lyrics now. Uh, uh, the line, I'll serve your ass like John McEnroe. Who yeah. would you say that to? What would be the circumstances? I say that to you every morning when you come in. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's wrong. And I've, I've gone to human resources about it. <laughs> I'm waiting for a verdict on this. I don't think it's appropriate. Oh, Thanks boy. Thanks checking out the Toronto Today podcast. Feel free to subscribe. Rate us where you can. Tell us what you want to hear more of. Tell us what we can do better. We're always in the mood for constructive criticism. Really appreciate it. It's your show also. It's as much your show as it is anybody else's. Thanks for checking out the podcast. We've got a live show to wrap up the week tomorrow between 5.30 and 9 on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Thanks for listening. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the great white north and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.